The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. We're continuing in our series, just going verse by verse through this great book as we uh, look now to uh, what life is like as we're following Christ. We've been made His friend, the incomparable, awesome uh, Savior who is Jesus Christ, His greatness and the great life that it is in following Him. And as you're turning there, just a, a journey back uh, with me a little bit into my childhood, and maybe you can relate to this, but I grew up in a rural dairy farming community in Wisconsin. Uh, and there, folks, uh, much like maybe you even have today, or even though I think the distinctions are becoming less and less now, but folks had different clothes for different settings, right? Had your church clothes, your Sunday go to meeting clothes. Familiar with that phrase? You had your church clothes. Uh, kids had their school clothes and their school shoes. You also had your house clothes. So comfortable and you just can't get rid of them, right? But also in the farming community, you had your chore clothes. The clothes that you went out and uh, worked with the animals on dairy farms, you know, Holsteins and other uh, cows. Some were pig farmers and even goat farmers and stuff. And on those farms, it was a messy business. So you had your chore clothes because you got certain things on your clothes, the filth and manure of uh, the work there. And after chores were done, you would look and even smell like just where you've been, in the barn. The phrase derriere is a real thing. Some would say, is to get a waft of it, that's the smell of money. But the look and smell of... Dairy farms is a real thing. And before, after your chores were over, before you would do anything else, the hard work of washing up would have to happen. You would go and, you know, take off your clothes and scrub and soap and, and, uh, and get cleaned up before you would do anything else. And the external was really easy. You know, you can wipe off your skin and, and bathe, but uh, you know what's really hard to remove? Smell. It just has a way of getting in your pores and, and saturating itself into your being. It just... Not pleasant. But now imagine after chores, after scrubbing up, after being clean, then coming back to dinner and you're having another family over. Imagine after uh, bathing, then putting those chore clothes back on and sitting down to dinner. You know, and in a similar way, I think our life, after becoming a friend of Christ, after following after uh, Jesus, of being reconciled, of going from an enemy to now his friend, of being washed by the word, of being washed in the blood, holy and blameless, clothed with Christ's righteousness. We too have these old clothes that lie in a pile in our closet and the smell lingers. For whatever reason, we have not thrown them away. For whatever reason, we uh, hang on to them and we know what is right and true. We know what is our identity, but the struggle remains. The desires are enticing. We know the joy of following Christ. We know the treasure of our, of our salvation. But how then do we walk in him, rooted and built up, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving, even when our sin remains? 
And in this journey of walking with Christ, Paul gets down to the, uh, to the heart. He gets down to our actions and our verses today to teach us how, where the rubber really meets the road. So look at your Bible. Let me read our passage for us today to set the table, and then we will look closely at it. It says this, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word for God's people. Here's how we can summarize our verses this morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. You can write it in the margins of your Bible or on your uh, sermon notes if you'd like. But when following Jesus, we are to cast off all our old sinful way of life. To cast it off, to put it off, to take it off, actually to put it to death. Now, when it comes to our sin and our old way of life, when uh, we become Christians, the Bible uses very violent, even bloody language when it comes to uh, dealing with our sin. The Bible never speaks of our sin and how we treat it in these like uh, uh, soft kind of coddling or, uh, or as if it's a peaceful type language. But it should not surprise us then that the Bible uses this violent, bloody language because it was a violent, bloody death that paid for it. It was Christ's death on the cross that set us free from the penalty of sin. It was holy God, the one that we've just sung about, the God who saves us, that came and put on human flesh, lived our life, lived an innocent life, obeying all of God's laws, never an evil thought or intention or action in his entire life. The only innocent one died a violent, bloody, brutal death so that we might be saved. We recognize as God opens our eyes as we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ because of his regenerating work in our life. We then walk in newness of life. We have a new way of thinking that models Christ. A new way of living that is following in his example all by his grace and energy through his spirit that works in us. We put to death, therefore, then the old way of life. And this is what Paul is getting at here in the flow of Colossians. As he was teaching that church and us today, he is saying, just follow the line of thinking. You have died with Christ, right? Verse 4, just go back there, or verse 3, rather, just scan up in your Bible here. You'll see the context is so important. For you have died. Somebody say amen to that, right? We've died. We've died to our sin. We've died to its power over us. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. These truths that we talked about last week, we are hidden with him. We, we have this security in him. And then when Christ, who is your life, your life, what we've just sung about, right? Football isn't life. Your spouse isn't your life. Your kids aren't your life. Christ is your life. Your job is not your life. When Christ is your life, when he appears, then this is what we have. And so he's saying, because this is true, now live accordingly. We've died with Christ, now put to death, put away, put off these old ways of thinking and doing. 
Theologians of old had awesome words for this. They'd call it mortify. Instead of put to death, mortify your sin. For we've been freed, just as I said, freed from sin's penalty. This may be helpful to, for you to think about how we live life and what is true of us in the Christian life in terms of sin. See, at the cross, we were freed from sin's penalty. The consequences, our death, rightly due to us because of our sin, Christ paid for fully and freely at the cross. Glorious truth, is it not? Also at the cross, he freed us from sin's power. So if you're thinking in peace here, uh, it no longer is our master. We have now died to its rule and reign over us where we could never uh, before Christ say no to our sin. Now we have this freedom to say no to it and yes to the things of God. But the reality remains is that we are not yet free from sin's presence. If you're thinking of those, writing them down, penalty, power, presence, free from penalty, free from the power of sin, but because we still live on this sin-corrupted earth, we are not free from sin's presence. That's what we long for in heaven. No more sin, no more pain, no more crying, no more nothing, but full in the presence of God. Our sin remains, but it does not reign, remain over us. And what remains then, this is what he's getting at, what remains in us are these sinful idols that need to be put to death. And so how do we follow Christ? How do we cast off these things? Well, here's the first few verses, the first point for us. Put to death your idols. Put to death your idols. It's a command that I said that flows from our identity. Look at verse 5. It, it, it flows out of it because of who we are. We have died. Now put to death what then lingers. Put to death what remains, these, these actions, these attitudes that are within us. And, and, and it's these earthly sinful idols then that still linger. That remain, that he lists here for us. Remember, we're to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. But where often does our mind get set here on earth? It's in these five here, these, this list of five that are really all actually kind of sexual in nature that start with action and then it reveals the heart motivation in all of these things, which is, as he says, idolatry. Here, just look at the list here real briefly. Here, it doesn't take lots of explanation, but I think we, it will help to kind of uh, sort out the difference here. The sexual immorality is just that broad word for anything outside the bounds of what God has designed for sexuality. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. That's, that's, his, that's, the, that's the field upon which we live. Everything else is outside of it. Everything else falls under this word. It's the Greek word porneia, where we get that word from. And people ask, well, what about this? What about this? Hey, here's the easiest way to explain what is right and true in the things of God. It's one man, one woman in the context of marriage. Everything else, every other desire, everything other immorality uh, when it comes to sexuality needs to be embraced, celebrated, put to death. Impurity. The next word, really, it's just uncleanness. It's both sexual and moral here. It goes beyond the actions here, the intention of this word, these impurities here, beyond just the actions to now the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. What corrupts the good desires that God has given us, passion and evil desire, really are closely related here. The passion is immorality let loose, and the evil desire then is the lust behind it, and they go hand in hand, and what motivates, and what, what then, uh, how we act here. 
Actually, in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, uh, 4, uh, Paul p- uh, puts these together. He calls it the passion of lust. He says this. Let's listen to this verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5. He says, for this is the will of God. Now, when that happens, like our radar should go off, right? This is important. Will of God. We looked at this several weeks ago. What is God's will for my life? Here's one of these. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to the passion and lust, or as we see here in these, passion, evil desire, like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, these sins here, these are a characteristic of those who don't know God, of unbelievers. Those who are not followers of Christ, those who are not following his friends, as is the final one here, covetousness or greed here. We want and we don't have, right? When it comes to uh, material things, when it comes to uh, sexual things here, we have these desires, we want them and don't have them. James says this to, uh, he warns, he says in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's like marriage counseling right here, right? Relationship counseling. Why are you fighting? Well, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And these are the things, the heart motivations that are behind and fuel our immoral actions. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But what do we know in Colossians? What is true of us now because of what Christ has done? We were once enemies, and now we are his friends. These actions that he is bringing out here are indicative of an unbelieving world of those who are enemies of God. And all of it is summed up in idolatry. Those desires that we want that we don't have. Tim Keller, there's a quote here on the screen, says this. I love it. Sometimes we get mixed up in our mind what are idols and we think of like little golden calves or wooden little, you know, uh, 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 statue things. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, that person that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that promotion, that, uh, that, that time to myself. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. And I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. And yet, church, in whom do we find our satisfaction? Who is the treasure of greatest price that we just sang about? Who is the only one worthy of our worship? It is Christ. It is Christ. And when it comes to these things, God's people have always had a different sexual ethic than the culture. Always. Forever. Since the beginning. That's where all the, the crazy things that we read about in like Leviticus, and we're like, ah, oh, this is, are we sure this is in the Bible? Is this, this, I, I'm not supposed to read this. But here's the thing. Always God's people have. They've, they've always had a different ethic from the culture, from the rampant liberty that is uh, really indicative of our age to even the pious abstinence of, of the purity culture and Victorian age uh, Christianity, all the way back to the days of Augustine, who you know, would think that even uh, uh, sexual, sexuality is itself base and depraved. And yet in both cases, it is making it an idol. Sexual idolatry is, is rampant. It's one of those primary things on earth that we seek 
And it is a distraction to Christ. It is a good thing that has, because of the fall, been distorted. And yet, by God's design, within God's bounds, it is a good thing. But it is not also a defining thing. We're not defined by our sexuality. Your marriage is not defined by your sexuality and and the fervency of the intimacy. You're not defined by who you love. We are defined by whom? Christ. We're defined by Christ. Our satisfaction is found fully in Christ and according to his wisdom and his ways and any distortions then to that. We don't even have to go through and list them all this morning because the list is long and laborious and is always changing and becoming more bizarre day by day. But what do we know? The distortions must be put to death. Why? Because look at the consequence in verse 6. The wrath of God is coming. And this is not necessarily just a threat. Like, get your act together, put it to death, or God's wrath is going to strike you down. It's a gracious admonishment. It is a warning for us that this, we know that God's wrath is coming. That's like as sure as, uh, as, as, as we are alive today. His wrath is coming. His, he will be justified in his tribulation judgments. We know that his wrath is coming because sin exists in the world. And if we want to have satisfaction, we want to follow Christ, we're going to live according to the ways that he has, then these things must be put to death. These things were once true of us. These things were once true, indicative of the way that we lived as enemies of God and not as friends of God. And so the question maybe remains, well, then how do we do this? How do we put it to death? Is he really like literally meaning that we have to like uh, uh, beat ourselves and draw blood or even take our own life? Now, how do we kill our sin? Help you, whether your sins fall into these categories or something else. How do we put to death our sin? Mind you, this is only possible because we have died to it. Because we are already dead, now we can kill it first. It begins with acknowledging, uncovering, and confessing it. Of calling it what it is, of bringing it to the light so it can't lurk there. Hiding it only takes us deeper. Hiding it only makes us waste away. Turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 32, because I want you actually to see this. We won't look at each passage on that list there for us, but this is so helpful for us, I think, to to think through these uh, uh, things. How do we acknowledge it? How do we uncover it? How do we confess it? Well, just just do a a drive-by with me through Psalm 32. This is a Psalm of David. He begins by saying this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Amen to that, right? Blessed are those who've been justified, who've been declared right in Christ, who are walking in Him, who Christ's blood has covered over our sin, where we now, because of what Christ has done, walk in newness of life. That's the blessed life, is it not? Absolutely. We have the blessed life. But look what he says here. For when I kept silent, silent about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by as the heat of the summer. Maybe you're feeling this right now. Maybe you've been in seasons like this as you kept silent, as you hid uh, your sin, you felt the angst and the heaviness of keeping it concealed. 
You felt the separation that it has created between you and others and between you and God where all life was just heavy and hard and wearying because of the concealment of your sin. But look at the remedy here, even how we kill in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, look what he does. He acknowledges, he calls it, he says, this is what I did. No excuses, no no, uh, blame shifting, just I acknowledge it. I did not cover it. Here's what it is. I opened it up and made it unknown. And he confesses it to the Lord, asking for forgiveness, which he receives from the Lord. You want forgiveness? Acknowledge, uncover, confess it, and you will receive forgiveness. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. The urgency, do not wait another day, lest you get consumed by it and your prayers will not then go out. Why? Because God here, uh, offer them urgently. God is a hiding place for me. He preserves us from trouble. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. And then as it's put to death, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Right? What great hope as we do this. God's word, his wisdom, his ways show us how. How do we live a life? How do we avoid this? How do we continue now to walk in the way we should go? Do this. Don't be like, don't look at, look at verse 9. Don't be stubborn. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding. It must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near to you. Stubbornness will only lead to more sorrows. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Want to know the love and joy of the Lord? Kill your sin. Walk in the freedom. Walk in the joy that he has given us. Don't cover it. Bring it to the light. That's why God gives us community. That's why he's given us himself, his spirit that lives in us. We acknowledge it. We confess it. We uncover it. We call it what it is. And as it then is brought to the light, here's another point you see on the screen. Then we flee. We run. We starve it. It gets put to death by not entertaining it, by not sticking around and uh, playing with it or having a relationship with it. No, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee like a deer being chased by a wolf. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, our fleeing isn't just running around like a madman, aimless with no destination. Actually, we flee from our sin towards the Lord, towards these things that he calls us to do. We flee from it. We have to uh, cut it off. Been through Freedom Group or heard other teachings in Matthew 5. It's a radical amputation. You've heard Jesus' extreme words. If your right eye causes you to sin, for you to lose one of your members, then for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, just give it a little slap. Cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. You want to kill your sin? Radically amputate it. Don't go near it. Get rid of your computer. Get rid of the bottle. Get rid of whatever it is. Cut it off. Then attack it by prayer and accountability. 
James 5, 16, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, as we confess it, as we uncover it, we then confess it to our brothers and sisters who are praying for us, who are walking with us, and we are attacking it, and we are growing in this. We are growing and taking strides through the prayer and accountability of God's people around us. This is how we kill our sin. But all of this, we can't forget to give thanks for God's grace that we can do it. Lest you today are feeling hopeless, so you're feeling uh, 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 the weight of this. You can say, yeah, I'm like they wasting away. Give thanks for God's grace. As we saw back in the prayer, Ben prayed it earlier, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. So if you're already in Christ today, this, thing, this sin doesn't define you. You have all you need. You can walk out the, the life that God has given you. He has qualified you. You're not doing this to earn your salvation. You're just now putting into practice what Christ has already enacted in your life. Praise God. Give him thanks that he has done this. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness, transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God that we can, right? Praise God that we can, that this is the way of life that was behind us. As verse 7 says, we once walked, we were once living in the, but we are not anymore. See, we're still following Jesus. We are casting off our old way of life. We're putting to death these idols. They need to be knocked over and killed. Just as God came and, and the Ark of the Covenant came and knocked over Dagon, the Philistine God. They need to be cut off and killed. But we also, as we grow, as we're casting off, we need to put off our relational sins. Look at verses 8 and 9 now. He says, but, you, uh, but now you must put them all away. Put to death, put them away, put them off now. Now is why the, you see the illustration here. It's like literally like putting off or taking off clothes, casting these things off. And in 8 and 9, these are the more external things. Whereas uh, in earlier in verse 5 and uh, there, those things may be more internal. Here now they're the relational, those social sins that we commit against one another in community, in our relationships. Why? Because all of us are still in progress. But now you must put them all away. We are in progress. God in his grace gives us one another to help, to help us see when we can't see, when we have like our chore clothes back on. When we put them on and we think we're sneaky sometimes with this stuff, don't we? We put our chore clothes back on, but then we cover it up and we put an outer layer of our church clothes on, right? And yet the smell remains. The smell remains. The actions are there. It can't be hidden. And so what are we to do? We're to put it off. We're to put it away. And here again, it starts with, uh, well, it actually, it's kind of reverse. It starts with motive and it comes out and it's revealed in our actions, revealed in how we speak here. He says, put these things away. Anger, right? That unreasonable passion that controls us. Sometimes it's just simmering below the surface. Some of us are maybe more sneakier, like we, we're a little more passive and silent in it. But others times it's eruptive, which is what he's getting at next. Put this way, put wrath, that eruptive expression of anger. This is really when we say, well, that guy's an angry guy. She's an angry woman. This is wrath, the eruptive expression of the unreasonable passion that controls us. Malice, then, is the vindictive expression of anger. Those actions, those motives where we're out to get, we're out to destroy, we're out to hurt another person. Slandering, then, is the vocal expression of our anger where we blaspheme. 
purposely saying what isn't true in order to tarnish somebody's reputation or discredit their being or their character, saying things that aren't true or comes out in obscene talk. Put it away. Abusive, vulgar speech that tears others down. Obscene talk probably, maybe so, characterizes many work environments, doesn't it? Tearing down, not building up, not encouraging. And lastly here, to put away the do not lie. Do not lie to one another, to deceive, to twist the truth, to perpetuate falsehood by concealing what is true and or purposefully spreading deceit. And what are these things? What does it say at the end of verse 9? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off these old self with its practices. All these lists here, they're practices. They are the manner of life of our old way of being. They are attributes, as we have said, that characterize unbelievers. They are fruits of pit, and they characterize Satan. For who is he? He is, well, he's the accuser of the brothers. He's the father of lies. These are things that describe him. These are the relational sins then that describe him and disrupt and divide the family of faith. So with earnestness, with zeal, we put them all off. We take them off. We get, we get rid of them we, and we help one another. Because these are committed within the context of community, within the context of relationship, we help one another when we can't smell ourselves. We can't see it, or even when we can, but we don't care. We come alongside and we walk with one another, putting these things off. This is the old way of life. But see, it doesn't just stop here, does it? It's not just, hey, we put off these things. We put to death our idols. We put off uh, the, the relational sins that we commit. For just, we, if we're just put off, then we're left bare. But every day we get dressed. Here's the final point in the text. Every day, then, we must put on, then, our new identity. Write that down. Put on our new identity. Because see, look at what it says in verse 10. Put off and put on. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This new self, which is Christ with his wisdom and his way is what we've been learning about all along. And it's a process. Each day making progress, that's the goal. It's not just that we arrive at perfection, right, and how we get dressed and how we live this life. That's like expecting our young children to be able to dress themselves. But even as our kids grow and mature, they even grow in the art of getting themselves dressed and putting on clothes that match and are appropriate for the occasion and all those things, right? The same is true even in our life. As we grow, we are growing in these attributes of uh, the new way of Living, it's a progress in holiness that begins in the mind, being renewed in knowledge. Just like Paul told the Roman church in Romans 12, 2, they were to, to be not conformed to the world, but transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And see, the, 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 do not be conformed. See, this again, it's, it's showing us here the way of life, the way of the world we are always out of sync with. The rhythms of the Christian life, the manner of life that we live, the way we make decisions and how we prioritize our time, how we schedule, how we live, what we say is always out of sync with the world. That's why he says, don't be conformed. If your life is, doesn't look any different than your unbelieving coworkers or your unbelieving neighbors... You're just being conformed to the world. 
but we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can discern and test what is good and acceptable and perfect, that which pleases God. We have a new way of living, a new way and knowledge of the creator. You know, love that? The end of verse 10, we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. And so how then do we put on, how then do we grow in these things? By learning about who God is. By, by uh, understanding with more depth and more affection who God is. Like just take the th- kind of the three big uh, categories of sins that we've just been talking about here. Who is our God? Who is Christ? Who is the creator? Well, he is holy. He is pure. He is not impure. He is not immoral. No, God is holy and just. He is pure. That's why we are told then in 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy or pure in all your conduct. And so as we grow in our understanding, the holiness of God, the trustworthiness of God, that he cannot sin and he will not sin against you. Therefore, all of his actions are good and right and he can then be trusted. Who is God? Who is our creator? Well, he is slow to anger. Exodus 34, verse 6, in his self-revelation there to Moses on Mount Sinai, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is our God. He does not lie. He is full of truth. He, He will not lead you astray. He does not deceive us. This is why to the church in Crete, as Paul wrote to Titus, the pastor there, the Cretans known for their laziness and their lying. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is how he opens the letter, Titus 1 and 2. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I know that's a mouthful, but what all he's saying is God doesn't lie. His promises are true. He is who he says he is. And see, we grow day by day just as we put on and we grow in even these three attributes. This new way ourselves, how we think about God, how we think about one another. These things are new to us. They're new to our identity, but they're now what define us in our unity in Jesus. See, our old self no longer defines us. Praise God for that, right? You're not defined by your past. You're not defined uh, by the things that, uh, give us, or that, that you've done in your past. You're not defined by where you're from. And see, we do this all the time. See, how do you self-identify? You know, like you say, well, I'm a Texan. Or adopted one, anyways. Wherever you might be from, well, maybe it's not that. I'm American, right? Reformed. We identify. We're married. We're single or anything else. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a Longhorn. I'm a Baylor Bear. I'm whatever, you know. But see, we're not identified. We're not distinguished by where we're from or what we do or by our sin or by our struggles, our past or present struggles now or the things that we did that we regret, but who are we defined by in verse 11? Christ. Christ is all and in all. And this is where he's getting at here. We're not defined by, uh, by these things. We put them to death, nor are we defined by these descriptors here, Greek and Jew. We know this, the Jewish people there who, uh, who Christ came from among, who the oracles of God were entrusted to, and the Greeks that were around them, whether you're circumcised or not, whether, whatever your religious upbringing is, doesn't matter. Whether you're a barbarian, 
really uh, uneducated or, uh, or vicious in those days. Okay? And it, it categorized everybody in those days as a non-Greek speaker. Now, we use it really more to categorize like violent people, like savage, uh, you know, violent people. Etymology, just curious if you're, maybe you're curious about this, comes from, like we say in our day, somebody that we don't understand, we're just like, yeah, blah, 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 right? Those days, anybody that they couldn't understand, if they spoke a language different than Greek, they're like, oh, that person, bar, 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 bar. And so it became barbarian is where the word came from. Anybody who didn't speak their language. And so uneducated, doesn't matter where you came from. Doesn't matter if you were a barbarian. Doesn't matter if you were a Scythian. These wild, savage, nomadic warriors from the north, that, uh, countries above the Mediterranean, Middle East, that would come down and terrorize and ravage them. Didn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Who employs you or who owns you? Doesn't matter. There are no ethnic, religious, cultural, social, or demographic distinctions in following Jesus. It's not about where you've been or who you are following, but where we are going. See, it is not these things that define us. It is Christ that is all, our treasure, our pursuit, the one who we seek after, where we set our minds in the first verses. He is our ambition. He is all. He is the treasure, and he is in all. Note that the person that you love that also loves Christ, who is following Christ, doesn't matter where they're from, even if they've hurt you, even if they uh, are walking in sin, this is what he is in them. This is why we live together, why we can love and forgive and trust one another, why we can hope the best and believe the best about our brothers and sisters. Not, not because of their great deeds or their ability to put to death their sin, but because Christ lives in them. The same hope that you have for defeating your sin, the same hope that you have for joy in Christ and love with Christ, he lives in them as well. Christ is all and is in all. See, what is a church that brings us together at redemption? It's our common faith in Christ. Where we're from, our things that uh, define us or things from our past, what defines us here as believers is that we're all in progress in our faith in Christ. We are all seeking after, in one degree, one level of maturity or another, we are all here making progress in our walk with Christ, rooted, being built up, established in the faith as we're being taught, as we are bounding in thanksgiving, who is in all of us, who's leading and guiding and transforming us. It is Christ it's his righteousness that clothes us now. It is his death on the cross that defines us now. It is his manner of life that leads us forward, not the stinking chore clothes of our past. May God give us more of his grace as we apply, as we apply what is already true of us. Pray with me to that end, and then we'll sing together. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are before you. You already know all that's going on in our heart and mind. You already know the things that we did this morning, did last night, did this past week, did years ago. So, our God, we, we don't pretend to hide it from you. Even now, just as we pray, God, as we come before you, as we feel the weightiness of it, as we feel and understand that this is why your wrath is necessary. 
just acknowledge and cover and confess it to you, Lord. Saying, help me, God. God, even in asking you for help, we just tell you thanks as well. Thank you for the forgiveness that we know. Thank you for the forgiveness that is available. Thank you, Lord, that you don't give up. But as we come before you humbly, trembling at your word, contrite in spirit, you lead us right along to greater joy, greater love, greater forgiveness, God. Thank you. Christ, you are our treasure. We confess, though, we squander that treasure, turn our noses up at it. We look for our own treasure. right now, God, before you, asking for more of you, asking for your help, asking for your grace, asking for your forgiveness, desiring to walk in this newness of life and the practices therein. Thank you, God. It's your grace that brings sin to the light. You do it because you love us, not because you're out to catch us in the act, beat us over the head with it. You desire holiness and purity in us. So we lean into you. We sing to you. We confess that you are our Savior and our Lord today. And we trust you. Pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.